Philippians 4, 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I, was, I was sitting down with my daughter. Uh, she's, she's four going on five, and we were sitting down, and I was trying to explain to her how uh, a scavenger hunt works. Right? Uh, how many of you guys know what a scavenger hunt is, right? I mean, you've never really lived unless you've done a scavenger hunt. Uh, but I was explaining to her, like, you know, the way that works is you've got this clue, or sometimes it's a map, and that leads you on to this, to this next clue or another map, and then you, you, that there, uh, you, you just follow the list of clues until finally you get to the point, you get to the prize. Uh, she asked me a really smart question. She goes, well, what, what if you just go straight for the last clue, right? What if you go straight for the last group, clue so that you can get to the prize sooner? Uh, and I explained to her that, that, you know, that would normally make a lot of sense, but you don't have that option with a scavenger hunt, right? Like a big part of what makes it fun is the game of going from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, until you finally get to the prize, I was thinking this week, that's, that's, that's kind of how life works, except without the fun. <laughs> we go from one thing to another thinking, this is going to be it. This is the prize that's going to finally satisfy me. But then we realize, like, no, that's not it. And so then you move on to the next thing thinking that's going to be it. And you're like, no, that's, that's not it. And so you move on to the next thing and the next thing. And it's this chase for contentment. The good news, though, is that God, God doesn't play games with us like that. He doesn't play games with us. He's after our joy. We talked about that last week. I mean, he actually commands rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice. Christianity is not a dry religion. Like, God is after our joy. He wants to stir up our affections. He designed us to be content, designed us to find satisfaction in Him. And so this morning, we learn from the words of Paul the secret of getting there. He calls it the secret of contentment. So let me ask you a question this morning. What impact does this search for contentment have on your life? What impact does discontentment have on your life? How often do you find yourself unsatisfied? We talked about anxiety uh, last week, earlier in Philippians chapter 4, and if anxiety's concern is, will everything turn out okay, then contentment's concern is, will I ever feel fulfilled? Will I ever feel complete? Will I ever feel whole? Discontentment is the feeling when you say, man, if I could just be this, if I could just have more of that, if I could just experience this, if I could just be known for that, then, then finally I'll be happy. Finally I'll be satisfied. Our nation, this nation that we live in, was founded on this social experience in the pursuit of contentment. 
What does the Declaration of Independence say? Every person should have a right to what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's like, hey, we're going to promise you life. We're going to promise you liberty, but happiness, man, you can pursue it. We're going to wish you the best of luck, but you're on your own. Good luck trying to find it. The thing is, like, we, we, we don't even know what we're after. That's why we go from one thing to the next. We move from one thing to the next to the next, never satisfied. That's why we rack up credit debt. That's why we put drugs into our bodies. That's why we lust after people who aren't our husbands or our wives. Why we join the latest gym or club. Why we drink too much or eat too much. We've convinced ourselves that if we can just attain that one thing, then maybe we'll finally be satisfied. Like this existential scavenger hunt. We have no idea what it is we're actually looking for. We just hope that the next thing is going to get us closer to the prize. And here, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I found it. Paul says, that thing that you've been searching for all your life, I found it. The thing you've been reaching for but can never actually hold on to, I found it. I found the age-old secret to contentment. And that's what we're looking at this morning, where he tells us how he's learned this secret. Now let's start in our text, beginning in verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you revived your concern for me. Remember, he's in prison and they, they sent support to him, to this guy named Epaphroditus. He was one of their own. They, they sent him hundreds of miles. He's like, I walked 500 miles. I walked 500 more just to, just to care for you. He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity now, I, I, I don't want to belabor this particular verse because we're actually going to talk more about it next week. But remember that, that this, this whole letter of Philippians is, is sort of like this glorified thank you letter. He starts off the letter thanking them. And now as we begin the conclusion to the letter, he's bringing it back around. He's sort of doubling down on his thanksgiving. He says, I'm so thankful for you. You revived your concern for me. I know you didn't have an opportunity to send Epaphroditus before, but now you did. I'm so grateful for that. And then in verse 11, this is where he talks about contentment. In verse 11, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He's saying in verse 11, just, just to be clear, I'm not passive aggressively thanking you over and over again so that you'll send me more support. I mean, maybe that'd be great, but I want you to know that I've learned in whatever situation that I am in to be content. That's our first point this morning. I want us to see that contentment is learned. Contentment is learned. Now, how did Paul learn this secret of contentment? If you know anything about his life, you know he's gone through so many ups and downs, like many of us. Life is filled with up and down, ups and downs, right? And if you know his story, he had these wild swings of really up and really down from these ridiculously highs to these extreme lows. It's, it's this guy that knows that experience. 
Paul learned what it means to be content in Christ through some of the just most gnarliest life experience. But, but his hope is that we'll learn this lesson by heeding his words. He says in verse 12 and 13, read it with me. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, through Christ who strengthens me. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, I've made a good living, and I know what it's like to be broke. I've enjoyed Wagyu prime rib, and I've lived off of ramen noodles. My cheap paraphrase. I've slept in a guest casita behind Lydia's house, who was this businesswoman in Philippi, and I know what it's like to be homeless. I've flown private. I've walked barefoot. I've lived both ways. And here's what I've learned. It's Jesus who makes all the difference in both situations. It's Jesus who makes having nothing seem okay. And it's Jesus who keeps me grounded even when I have everything. Regardless of where you're at in this room this morning, the lesson Paul wants you to learn is that what you really need is to be satisfied and to be content in in Jesus. As cliche as that sounds, having satisfaction and contentment and he says strength in Jesus changes everything for us. It changes everything. By the way, when Paul uses this word secret, he's using an important word in the original Greek. It's, it's this clever way of saying, look, I'm, this is something, that I, this thing that I'm talking to you about, this is something that not everybody has, but everybody longs for it. Everybody wants to know it. Paul's pointing to something that all people throughout history know that there's a deep longing in our hearts that nothing in all creation can satisfy this cosmic itch that's just begging to be scratched. So maybe ask yourself this morning, like, like, like where is it that, that I go to for content, contentment? Where do you go for comfort? Why do you, what, what, what is it that you turn to when you're looking to feel whole, filled, satisfied? Where do you go to get your sense of worth or peace? What prayer that you pray that if left unanswered would just cause you to unravel the one thing that you find ultimate comfort in? Paul says what he goes to for comfort is Jesus. All I have is Christ. That's the motto of his life. That's his motto when he's got it all. It's also his motto when he's got nothing. Like at this very moment when he's in prison, tied to a prison guard, he says, I've learned this lesson of contentment. And then he talks about two schools in verse 12 that he learned contentment in. He, we, let's call them the school of prosperity and the school of poverty. Let's look at the first one. Point number two, the school of prosperity. Look again at verse 12. He says, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
he says, look, he's able to faith both prosperity and poverty, which is kind of a, a, a weird statement, right? Like he's saying, because of Jesus, I can face prosperity. Like because of Jesus, I'm able to face being loaded and popular and comfortable. Why, like, why, why do you need Jesus to face that? But if you have any experience with like affluence, having a lot, you know that affluence doesn't deliver on what it promises. It doesn't deliver on what it promises. So anxiety and depression is more concentrated in areas of great prosperity. You don't see that as common in third world countries. And there, there's this law in economics called the law of diminishing returns. It basically says like the more that you have, you get more and more and more of something, the less value it will eventually hold over time, the less you're, you'll sort of enjoy it. Some of you in this room know that I love pizza. <laughs> I love pizza. I think one of the most divine evidences of grace to our generation are these like build your own pizza joints. Whatever you want, amen. That's right, hallelujah. Whatever you want, let's put it on the pizza, right? One of the clearest evidences of grace. Checkmate, atheist. Give me that gluten-free cr crust, preference, not allergy. Add a ton of meat with veggies, including cilantro, one of my favorite me meals in the world. But even I know that that first slice of pizza is always more satisfying than the seventh. <laughs> first is fantastic. The seventh, you start to feel sick. The law of diminishing returns tells us that anything you overindulge in will eventually work against what you're going after in the first place. Because the more that you have, the more you realize it just isn't enough. I was reading this book, Jesus Outside the Lines, earlier this week, and in it, there's this old interview with, uh, with Mariah Carey. Uh, I think it was like in the, in the 90s. And, and uh, in this particular interview, I think it was with Barbara Walters. She's like, Mariah Carey's in her late 20s. Uh, she's in her late 20s. She's at the top of her career. She's got like more number one hits at the time than, than like ever in, in music history, uh, except for like Elvis and the Beatles. Right? And so she's at the top of her career, top of her game. And the interviewer asked her, what do you have next to achieve? What is left for you to try to achieve and accomplish? And Mariah Carey sits there. And she pauses for a moment and she goes, happiness. Happiness. And the interviewer didn't know what to do with her response and tried to tease out of her, like, like I'm sure you're not saying what I think you're saying. And she's like, no, that, that's what I'd like to achieve next is happiness. There's that famous Jim Carrey quote when he said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. He said that at the Golden Globes as he was receiving a, a, an award. I want everyone to get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can just see that this is all not the answer. There's a myth that the natural man and the natural woman sort of grows up to believe. It's that the things we desire will satisfy our desires. But they never do. 
They never do. There's this Old Testament story that really illustrates this. It's in in Numbers 11. You've got the nation of Israel. They're sort of trekking through the wilderness. They're hungry. They're in need. And God, like, supernaturally provides bread to fill their bellies. But to them, they're like, this isn't enough. They wanted meat. Which, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Clearly, there's nothing wrong with that. (laughs) wanting good meat, but except in the Hebrew, it says that they were lusting for meat. They were looking for meat for their ultimate satisfaction. And so God, out of love for them, says, all right, I'll give you the meat. But here's what's going to happen. You're going to eat it, and you're going to eat it, and you're going to eat it and eat it until it comes out your nostrils and you come to despise it. And then you'll realize that the bread of life that I've given you is more than enough. That's what happens to them. That's what happens to us. Our sinful nature makes us desire these things. I mean, sometimes they're good things like food and money and sex and drink, good gifts from the Lord, but we wind up wanting them on our terms. And we wind up wanting them in a a capacity and a quantity that's more than what's good for us. Created things were never meant to bear the weight of our worship. Created things were never meant to bear the weight of our worship. That's ultimately what what we're doing when we're looking for something for our ultimate satisfaction, where we're saying like, hey, if only I have this thing, if only if I have this person, if only I achieve that goal, then I'll be satisfied. You know what that thing becomes? Your functional savior. Do you find in yourself a desire for something that just never satisfies, is never satisfied? Anytime you find a desire in you that is never satisfied, you should consider that a gift. Consider that a gift from God. How, why, why would we consider that a gift? It's because just like Israel in the wilderness, and that in Numbers 11 through 21, just like Israel back then, God could be waking you up to the reality that the things of this world could never satisfy, never satisfy you. It was God's kindness to them to have the meat come out their noses, to have them despise it so they could finally see the value of the bread of life. God is lovingly drawing us to Christ, the bread of life that always satisfies. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire? Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse my desire for that place with that person, Jesus. Do you find in yourself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy? Do you find in yourself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy? Then look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, Paul's, Paul's pointing us to, the one who your heart was made for. 
And here's the irony of this whole thing is that the less you actually rely on creaturely things for your identity and purpose, the more you can actually enjoy those creaturely things. Because then you can truly possess God's gifts without having them possess you. So Paul says, look, I've, I've learned. I've learned through Christ, through knowing him and, and enjoying him and being satisfied in him. I know what it's like to meet and face plenty without this having that insatiable desire for more and more and more. Next, Paul says, I want you to see, he talks about the school of poverty. We called the first school the school of prosperity. Now this one's the school of poverty, point number three. Read verse 12 again with me. He says, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The main difference between this school and the other school is that those that have a lot think, man, if only I had one more thing, then I'd be happy. But those with nothing, on the other hand, think, man, if only I had something, then I'd be happy. But it's still a similar search that still leaves us wanting. I ran across this great poem that was quoted in one of my commentaries. I want you to read this. Fast, this, is, this is written by a 14-year-old, uh, like won an award like years ago. But, but listen to the words of this poem. He says, It was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was actually spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was the middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. Profound wisdom from a 14-year-old. He knows and was able to articulate beautifully what we all know. We always think the next thing is that one thing that will finally satisfy our soul's deepest cravings, and yet it never does. It never does. What about you? What, what, what is it that you think you need in order to be content? What thing, what person, what position, what reputation, what value do you think you need in order to be content? You ever notice how your answer to that question a few years ago is different from the way you answer that question today? Always craving, never satisfied. Paul says he's learned what it means to face hunger and need. And if anyone knew that, what it meant to, to be in hunger and to, what it meant to have need, it was Paul, right? 
It was Paul. I mean, if you remember his story, he's got a crazy story. He actually kind of unpacks his story in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn there really quick with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Beginning in verse 23, Paul's writing a letter to another church, a church in Corinth, and he starts listing to them all just the, the awful things that he's experienced. In verse 23, he talks about how he's had like far more imprisonments than anyone else. Countless beatings, countless beatings. You know what that means? That means he was beat so many times he lost count. I can count the number of times that I've gotten beaten up on one hand. Obviously zero. <laughs> Just kidding. It's been a few times. I've actually like gotten beat up before, uh, but I can remember those, those few times. I, and I literally can't count them on, 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 on one hand. And Paul says, look, this happened to me so many times, I lost count, countless beatings, countless imprisonments. He says, I was often near death at the end of verse 23. He's saying, like there was this one time in Lustra that we read about, I think it's in Acts 14, where he's preaching in, in this house. He's going from house to house, preaching the gospel in Lustra. And one point, people start throwing stones at his head start throwing rocks at his head, and he gets knocked out so hard, bloodied up so bad, that the people that were stoning him actually thought he was dead. They thought he was dead, and so they drag his body out to the edge of the city and just leave him for the vultures. Paul says, I was often in that kind of position. I was often near death. And in verse 24, he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. He used to be a, a Jew, a Jew of Jews. And when he came to saving faith in Christ, all the old religious zealots that used to be his comrades, they, they, they were after him. They persecuted him. He says, at the hands of the Jews, I had 40 lashes less one, which was the custom of the time. Three times, he says, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times, I was shipwrecked. Three times. A night and a day, I was adrift at sea. I mean, you'd think after the second shipwreck, you'd be like, all right, no more boats for me. But Paul's like one of those three times the charm guys. And one of those three times, he's adrift for almost 24 hours. Verse 26, he says, on frequent journeys, I was in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Ministry for Paul was dangerous, but, but remember, when he wasn't like Indiana jonesing it with all these crazy missionary adventures, he's also just a regular pastor. Regular pastor, regular church planner, and like just a regular old pastor, he regularly carries a spiritual burden for the Christians he's invested his life into. In some sense, that, that, that's emotionally draining. There's a reason that a lot of guys in ministry struggle with anxiety and depression. And here, Paul, the apostle, the guy who said just a few verses earlier, don't be anxious about anything, gets honest in 2 Corinthians 11 and says, look, I get anxious. 
when I think about how much I care about the churches and how I just want everyone to be growing in Christ. So here's a guy, Paul, who suffered poverty in his financial resources, poverty in his emotional resources, poverty in his physical well-being, beaten, left for dead, shipwrecked. I mean, we skipped over a ton in his story, but I want you to hold these things in your mind. Hold these things in your mind. All the scourgings, the stonings, the shipwrecks. Imagine how many times his broken body just lay crumpled on the ground. This, this guy with his face dripping blood onto the dirt as he just stares at it after a dirty beating. Hold all those things that he went through in your mind and then read these words again in Philippians 4. He says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret, he calls it, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Do you see what he's saying? Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying, Christ is everything to me. Because Christ, Christ is all that I need. He's all that I have. Christ is everything to me. He's saying when I was on top of the world, that was nothing compared to knowing Christ. When I was bloodied up on the shore, knowing Christ kept me pushing forward. He's everything to me. Why? Why can he say that? Why can he say that he's learned this lesson? It's because of verse 4. Or, sorry, point number four, verse 13. Read it again. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He has strength, perspective in Christ. This is Paul's great secret to contentment, that he can do all those things, the plenty and hunger, the abundance and need. He can do all these things through Christ who strengthens him. He's saying, I can live with plenty without losing my identity in it. I can live with lack without losing my hope from it because Jesus strengthens me. He's all that I have. He's all that I know at the end of the day. This is probably the most misused verse in the Bible, Philippians 4.13, right? Like every jock in high school had this as his life verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Big game tonight. No worries. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I know that was some of you. But this verse is not about making gains. It's not about winning games. It's not about chasing your dreams or pulling yourself up by your bootstraps like we tend to use it. Now, to be clear, there's nothing wrong with making gains and winning games and following your passions. I mean, one of the godliest things that you can do is invest in your health, set goals, start a business, move up the corporate ladder so that you can bless the world for the glory of God and the good of others. 
But this secret to contentment goes deeper than all those things. Goes deeper than that. It's this life testimony that says, I know Jesus. Like, I really know him. He's become my greatest treasure, my deepest joy, the satisfaction of my soul. Because when you really grasp who Jesus is and what he's done for you, then nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. When you really know him, like Paul does, it gives you strength. When you really know who Jesus is, when you really know what he's done in your place for you, when you see the weight of your sin that once condemned you and how that weight is no longer your burden because Christ has, has removed it, he's taken it on, then what else matters? What else matters? This is the secret of contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs, I love the way he puts it in... Uh, he he is wrote a, uh, he's a Puritan. He wrote a book. I think it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And Jeremiah Burroughs, in that book, he says, the heavier the burden of your sin is to your heart. In other words, the more that you grasp how wicked your sin is, the lighter will the burden of your affliction be to your heart. And so you shall be content. The greater... You know how wicked your sin is? The, gr the greater you understand how amazing Jesus is and what he's done for you and who he is. And those two things, man, once you grasp that, once you grasp that gospel, you can be content in any situation because he is taking care of your greatest need, your cosmic need. When your mind is fixed on Christ, you have the strength to not be crumbled by the law of diminishing returns, but you also have the strength to endure through the hardest and toughest of trials. Paul calls this a secret of contentment. Now, word of verse 11 for contentment is the Greek word atarkes, atarkes, which, which is from the combining of, 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 two, of two different words, auto, which means self, uh, and archaeo, which means to be full or to be satisfied. It's a sense of like when you eat the perfect portion of the best meal, except it's not about a physical satisfaction, but a soul satisfaction. It makes you say, even when it's hard, even when you've got nothing, you can still say, Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Or even in prosperity to say, Hallelujah. This prosperity isn't my life. It could all be taken away tomorrow and I'll still be okay because Christ is my life. There's this uh, famous uh, incident during the uh, English Reformation in 1555. Maybe you've seen this, this, this uh, famous image before, uh, uh, this, this, this artwork. But this famous incident during the English Reformation when you've got two guys, Hugh Latimer and uh, Nicholas Ridley, who were burned at the stake. 
Two respected leaders in the church, uh, in the English church, were captured and tried, and they were tied uh, to a single stake back to back against one another and then burned alive by the Roman church. And the Roman Catholic Church under Queen Mary burned a ton of men and a ton of women at the stake at around this time. Why does this particular, why does this particular incident stand out in history? Why, 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 does, why does this incident so well known? It's because of what happened when they lit the fire at their feet, when they started burning at them. Latimer looks over his shoulder, he turns to Ridley, and above all the shouting and jeering and cussing from the crowd that was surrounding them, Latimer says to Ridley, he shouts out and he says, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man, for today, by God's grace, we will light a candle in England that will never be put out. Find joy, Master Ridley. Be of good cheer. For today, by God's grace, we're suffering for Jesus. All these people are looking in, and we are lighting a candle in England that's never going to be put out. How could anybody in these circumstances have that condition of heart? Have to say that kind of thing. It's because he knew what Paul knew, the secret of contentment. And the story of their martyrdom was fuel for the Protestant church in the region. Latimer's contentment in that moment, what he said to Ridley with all those people listening in while he was burned at the stake, living out in front of everyone, when I'm in great need, I, 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 I can be confident, I can have strength in, in Christ. I can do this thing. I can be burned at the stake through him who strengthens me. That level of contentment that Latimer had preached. It preached. And their candle turned into a torch for the gospel throughout Western Europe. What about you this morning? Your relationship with contentment or discontentment, what does your contentment preach? What does your relationship with contentment or discontentment preach to those around you? To your kids growing up under you? To your neighbors who live next to you? to the saints sitting in the pew in front of you or behind you, to your co-workers, to your home group. Your relationship with contentment, what does that preach? If you want to burn with high, white hot contentment, if you want to burn with white hot contentment, then you need to turn your gaze from what you have and what you don't have and say at the end of the day, all I truly have is Christ. And he's more than enough. He's more than enough. Everything else could be taken away, but Christ is enough for me. You need to turn from the flickering things of earth and fix your eyes on Jesus, the one who's called the light of the world. Remember, he's also called the bread of life the bread who was torn in our place on the cross for our sins. 
He, Jesus, on that cross, tasted spiritual poverty so that we could experience what it means in Him to be finally whole, to be finally satisfied. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.